Well, especially in America, we think of wealth as the greatest advantage. And if you're born into a wealthy family, today you're called privileged. But in many cases, wealth can actually be a curse. It can be a disadvantage, a handicap in life. Wealth can even drag you down into the grave. In 1847, Captain Moberg and his 10-member crew left Sweden, bound for Hamburg, Germany. There they picked up an assortment of men, mostly German and Swiss immigrants, looking to head to America, to to New York. But on August 9th, at 1 a.m., under dense fog, the Aduna, the ship they were on, was rammed by the American ship, the Shanunga, and the ship tore a gaping hole in the side of the Aduna, right below a water line, and started taking on water violently and sank within just 30 minutes. The collision was so sudden and water came in so fast that the people on board didn't really even have time to get dressed. They just hopped overboard into the cold water awaiting rescue. The Shanunga, the other ship, it launched its life rafts or lifeboats back then, and but it took them about 30 minutes. They found their survivors floating in the water. But of the 206 passengers, only 34 were saved. 172 drowned and perished, including the captain. And so many wondered, how did this happen? How did so many perish? Why were so few saved? They weren't in the water that long. How did this happen? Well, most of the passengers on the Iduna were immigrants coming to America to start a new life. And so they had brought all of their life savings with them, mostly in the form of gold to purchase land, farms, businesses. When the ship started to sink and take on water, it wasn't time to get dressed, but they did take their gold and their silver and they secured it around their waist on belts. The captain himself was reported to have about 1,400 in gold. One man had 14,000 in gold, which back then, 1847, is apparently roughly equivalent to $400,000. But I trust you can put together the rest of the story. It's hard enough to tread water for 30 minutes, but treading water for 30 minutes with weights, gold weights tied around your waist is pretty much impossible. And those who clung to their money, wanting to save both their treasure and their life, lost both. But the survivors who were found half naked, nothing left, they had lost all their livelihood, but they had saved their lives. I find this true story to be a fitting picture of the dangers of wealth. We find to be wealth a great advantage in life, and in most cases it is, but most will find that it on the day when your soul is demanded of you, it's been your greatest disadvantage. As you know, Christ said you cannot serve two masters, God and wealth. And some people have unashamedly chosen wealth as their master. And though they may prosper in this life, they entered this world naked. They're going to enter the next naked. Only those whose master is Christ, only those who are clothed in Christ, though, so to speak, will be saved. Your riches will fail you and they will enter the world, the next world, lost. And so it's in this regard that the poor can actually be considered, in a way, privileged. Spiritually speaking, the poor are the advantaged ones. They don't have gold and silver money belts weighing them down, taking them away from Christ. Scripture does not teach salvation by poverty as if You are more righteous simply because you have less money. That's not true. But scripture does teach this paradox that the poor are rich spiritually and and the rich are poor. 
And we're going to learn about this paradox today from James chapter 1. So if you haven't already, take your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 1. Scripture is full of these paradoxes where conventional knowledge is flipped on its head. Christ himself employed these more than any as he confronted this upside-down world with the way things really are. And so Christ taught, for example, that the way up is down. The first will be last, and giving is receiving. Scripture adds that the weak are strong, the slave is free. The foolishness of the cross is actually the wisdom of God, and that death brings life. These paradoxical statements on the surface seem untrue, foolish, even contradictory, but when you view them through the lens of of Scripture, they, they make perfect sense. And Christ's frequent use of these paradoxes must have rubbed off on his half-brother James, because in the letter of James, we we certainly get several more. James has already given us one in a way by telling us that our trials are actually an occasion for joy. And in our text for this morning, we're going to find another. Here's a paradox that's meant to turn upside down the way we think of riches. What does it mean to be rich? Well, let's find out and read now James 1, verses 9 through 11, our passage for this morning. James 1, look at verse 9. He says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. It's an interesting passage. To begin, though, we want to ask first how it fits in. Does it fit in to James 1, the the bigger context of James 1? Last week, we made the point that James appears to jump around from topic to topic quite randomly. So verses 2 through 4, he's all about trials. 5 through 8, it's all about Wisdom, praying for wisdom. Here, verses 9 through 11, it's all about poverty and riches. And look, that's fine. Maybe James is like the book of Proverbs. He's given us this random topical wisdom for life. That, that would be fine. But we also pointed out last time that there are actually several threads that run through James that tie these passages together. He's not as random as some might think. And notably, he started his letter In verse 2, talking about enduring your trials, counting them joy to endure. And then in the next verse, verse 12, after our passage here, verse 12, he directly picks up that topic again, coming back to persevering under trial. And there's reason to believe he never left the topic of trials in between. Remember the big picture, verse 2. He starts off telling us to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. We're being challenged to rethink our trials, to see them from God's perspective, to know that in our trials, he is testing and proving and strengthening our faith. That's a good thing. And in that, we can count our trials joy. But that's, that's some meaty truth, so much so that the spiritually young can, can kind of choke on it. This requires divine wisdom, though, to accept. I mean, do you have a hard time 
counting your trials as joy? Well, probably, and to help with that, you need God's wisdom. You need God's wisdom to help see it his way. And so in verses 5 through 8, we're directed to pray for this wisdom. Just ask and pray, and knowing that God is delighted to give you freely wisdom, his wisdom, the wisdom you need to see all of life from his perspective, his way. You have to ask sincerely, surrendering yourself to God's will. But such a prayer and faith will be revealed with a deeper understanding of God and and his ways, which are higher than our ways. You won't be able to count your trials as joy, like he tells us to, apart from this divine wisdom. So now with this in mind, we come to verses 9 through 11. And here I believe James moves into a case in point. A case study, if you will, on counting your trials joy. And he's using the trial of poverty. The trial of poverty. Talk about a time when you need God's wisdom to see things his way. Poverty is a crushing trial for many. But when you seek and find God's wisdom and apply it to your circumstances, it actually transforms your situation into a blessing in disguise where poverty can, in a way, even be a hidden blessing. That also means riches can be a curse. And accordingly, James issues a special warning for the rich here because they're in danger. The world sees wealth as an asset, but James sees it as a liability, a spiritual liability. If you're rich, you are more liable to be double-minded, as he says back in verse 8. Remember, James, he's primarily targeting and picking on the double-minded Christian in this letter. The one who's not quite sincere in his or her faith. But you need single-minded devotion to the Lord. That's what a disciple looks like. The one with one foot in the world, one foot in the church. Well, he will be unstable in all his ways, he says back in verse 8. And now we find, really, who is more prone to being a double-minded Christian than the rich? Riches tug at their heart to serve two masters. And this is why James warns us and cautions, especially the rich. And so we find now altogether that verses 9 through 11, this passage, it can stand alone, but the message is richer when you see the thread connecting this passage to the context. Now, now though, let, let's actually move in and, and seek to understand a little more, more deeply what he's trying to say in these three little verses, 9 through 11. And as we go through, just continue to let your own thinking be challenged. Let your view of trials be transformed. Let your view of wisdom be transformed. Let your view of poverty and riches be be transformed. And to do that, James is going to challenge our thinking with two paradoxes on what it means to be rich. That's what we're going to find here. Two paradoxes on what it really means to be rich. The first is when the poor become rich. Number one, when the poor become rich. Look, look again at verse 9. He says, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. 
Now, starting off, James introduces us to a Christian character. The fact that he's Christian is evident. He calls him a brother, like he did in verse 2 to all the brethren in, in the churches. But this is not just any brother or sister. This is the brother of humble circumstances. So naturally, we ask, what, what does that really mean? Well, these two, word, two words translate just one word in the Greek, tapinos. Literally, it means low as opposed to high. But of course, James is not talking about those who are low in physical stature. He's talking about those who are low in social stature. This word is used of those who are low on the economic totem pole and wealth status in society. Humble circumstances basically refers to poverty, made clear because he contrasts these people with the rich. It's the rich and the poor. Angel and I just watched a documentary about legal immigrants who are brought into America under an H-1B visa on purpose to work seasonally at carnivals. They bring them in by the busload. They, they leave their families for about eight months, live in a little shack, and make about 2 to $3 an hour. Those are humble circumstances. What's kind of ironic, of course, is when they go back to Mexico, they become basically upper middle class because of that income. That just shows the disparity among nations, which knowing this, it, it should be hard for most Americans to really complain about poverty compared to the rest of the world. That said, there are many Americans who are below that poverty line and, and many others who, who aren't, but they're still struggling to pay bills or living paycheck to paycheck. And these would also qualify as humble circumstances. It's just anyone who's low on the socioeconomic ladder, which just means everyone else kind of tramples you and walks all over you. You're at the bottom. Throughout history, this has been a common experience among Christians. And you know what else is common is the response, the natural response in the world. The natural response of most people to such a state of poverty is what? Despair, depression. There's also anger and frustration. Maybe you're in a lot of debt. You just can't catch a break. It's it's like you're trying to dig a hole at the beach in the sand. Every time you dig, it's like just caves in and fills back up. You can't make progress. Other people catch a break. You never catch a break. You just want to rise above living paycheck to paycheck, but you can't. I mean, such circumstances can wear people down and turn them quite bitter. These are the natural responses of those in the world to such humble circumstances. But as Christians, I think, I trust we already understand these are the wrong responses. These are ungodly responses. And to be sure, they're easy responses, but this is not how we're called to respond to even the trial of poverty. So what is the right response for those who are struggling? They, they're, they're at the bottom. Well, here's where the paradox, the first paradox comes in. Look, James, he's not trying to, to smugly write off all the hardships of poverty. He was dirt poor. All the apostles lived in poverty. And he's not saying, you know, just click your heels twice. It'll all go away. He's under no illusions here. He understands this trial at a deep level. But we who follow Christ, we're called to a different response, a higher response, a godly response to all trials, including 
poverty. This is a response that fundamentally goes against everything in your nature, how you, your, your flesh wants to respond. It's a response that can only be had by those who are truly trusting Christ, though. And so paradoxically, James tells us, verse 9, that the brother of humble circumstances is to what? To complain, to despair, to grow bitter? No, he says he is to glory. The brother of humble circumstances is to glory. This word glory means to exalt or to boast. It it refers to taking pride in something and then expressing that pride. Now, we think of such boasting normally as a vice. And indeed, if you are to boast in yourself or your accomplishments, that, that is a sin before the Lord. What do we have that we did not receive? But at the same time, there's, there's a right sense of boasting in Scripture, a boasting in the Lord. And here, James is talking about that, that positive sense of boasting. This is a righteous boast. He's telling the poor that they have good reason to boast, to rightly boast. Now, already this sounds upside down because in the world, they have no reason to boast. That's the whole point. They're poor. They don't have a house. They don't have a car. They don't have nice clothes. They don't eat nice food. They have no reason to boast. And look, if you value the world and the things of the world above all else, then it's true. The poor have no boast. But James is confronting your value system here. Yeah, it's true. The poor have nothing to boast of in this world, but they do have a boast because they possess something more valuable than all the things of the world. What do they possess that's so valuable they can boast in? Well, he says they have a high position, but the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position, to glory in his high position. This word for high position literally means height, as in elevation. It continues to sound backwards, especially when you read this verse in the original Greek. It doesn't quite come across in the English, but in the Greek, verse 9 literally reads as follows. The verb comes front and he says, boast, the low brother in his height. That's verse 9. Boast, the low brother in his height. And when you put it like that, that the contrast, that the paradox really stands out. The low brother is to boast in his height. Again, the poor Christian has no high standing in the world. But I, I assume by now you can already put two and two together and understand James is speaking spiritually. The humble Christian is to boast in his spiritual height, in his heavenly high position. This is confirmed by the next, excuse me, the next verse in the passage, verse 12, where James tells us to explicitly set our minds on our heavenly hope to help us endure trials. Look at verse 12. He said, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You don't get a crown, but you do get a crown of life, eternal life. 
That sounds pretty nice if you just trust Christ, you persevere under trial, you finish the race of faith, you will be welcomed into the kingdom by the King of Kings, and he will give you the crown of life, eternal, an eternal inheritance. That sounds nice. And it's along these lines that James is telling the poor to boast. To the world, your position is low, your status is low, your value is low. But to the Lord, all by his grace and his choosing, but to the Lord, your position is high. Your value is high, your worth is high. That's a reason for boasting. Spiritually speaking, you're, you're rich in Christ Jesus, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, James doesn't elaborate further, but other scriptures go on to further reveal what kind of spiritual blessings we have in Christ. For example, Philippians 3.20 says, we've already been made citizens of heaven and we will be transformed into glory. Also, 1 Peter 1.4 says, we have a heavenly inheritance. It's reserved in heaven. It's imperishable, undefiled, won't fade away. It's there for you who are in Christ. We will inherit the kingdom of God. We don't belong there. We're sinners. We're rebels. But again, by, by God's grace, through Christ, by faith, we, we've been saved. We've even been adopted into his family. And so now Romans eight seventeen says, we are even children of God and heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. Despite all of our present sufferings, there is glory waiting to be revealed to us. And so really, Scripture is filled with really all the same teaching that James has and is giving us here. All throughout, God's Word transforms the definition of what it really means to be rich. Are you rich? If you are in Christ by faith, the answer is yes. You are rich spiritually. That, that truth should give you joy. And this is how even the poor can boast. But this truth will challenge you. It'll challenge how much you really value spiritual riches. And sadly, I think some Christians, deep down in their heart, they'd rather take the money. They would rather just be rich in this life if they could really choose. Does that sound like you? And does that sound like true faith to you? Whom do you really serve as master, Christ or wealth? Is Christ really the treasure of your heart? Only those who have been truly transformed by Christ will be able to, to transform their thinking and how they view riches like this. You know, sadly, though, there are some Christians who end up falling away <clears throat> from the faith because of the trial of poverty. In setting trials, we looked at the parable of the sower, remember? You remember the seed sown by the rocky places, representing those who hear the word and immediately receive the word with gladness. But when persecution or affliction arises because of the word, they immediately fall away. Some fall away because of their trials. But don't forget also the seed sown by the thorny places. Do you remember that? 
That represented the person who also receives the word. But when the worries of the world and the, Christ said, the deceitfulness of riches come, they choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. You see, the world says you need money to be happy in life. Your heart will never truly be fulfilled without wealth. It's the key that that unlocks all your heart's desires. These are lies, but they find an audience in the hearts of some so-called Christians. And the reason, you know, since since I've become a Christian, I'm not better off. Where is this best life now I was promised? I haven't seen it. And some fall away. They abandon Christ as their master, and they turn to a new master, wealth. But that's a bad trade, because wealth is a deceitful master. It's a fickle master and a wicked master. Those who think this life is all about owning riches are themselves truly owned, and their master will only lead them to the grave. There's a story of some men who were searching for gold in the Klondike region of Alaska. And there they stumbled upon an abandoned miner's hut. They went inside, they found two skeletons and a pile of gold. There was a note on the table and had told of their existence. They had told that they, they did it. They found gold. They struck it rich. They went up there to Alaska during the gold rush. They found it. They were so obsessed with finding gold, though, that they failed to recognize and prepare for the coming of winter. And as they found gold, each day they found more, and that's all they could think about. They ignored the coming winter, and when the first winter storm came, they were woefully unprepared. Their cutoff route, or their their escape route was cut off, their food supply was quickly exhausted, and they just perished in that shed next to their little pile of gold. It's a fitting picture of those who are mastered by riches. It reminds me of Christ's words. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but forfeit his soul? That's not the way. There's no hope in riches. There's only hope in Christ. Remember this verse. Memorize this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ That though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. And I trust you understand, it's not talking about money at all there. Rather, Lord Jesus left the glories, the riches of the heavenly realm, humbled himself, came to earth, took on a human nature, which by comparison is extreme poverty. Then he lived on earth, he lived in Actual poverty as well, but even more so, he humbled himself by enduring the cross. And there he suffered the full weight and wrath of God so that our debt, our sin debt might be erased and just completely paid for. And on top of that, he died to heap onto us to transfer to our account his full storehouse of eternal riches, his perfect righteousness given to us in his death and resurrection. This is how Jesus came to make the spiritually poor rich. That's all of us. But this comes as a grace gift. The gift that must be received 
by faith, Scripture teaches. Christ must be your only master, your heart's treasure to receive this gift. That's what faith is. Christ is your Lord. Only when you get this, only when you truly value Christ alone, above all, in your heart, will you accept James's words here, especially if you're poor, when he says, let the brother of humble circumstances glory, boast in his high position. Take heart, be of good cheer, you're rich in Christ. You're actually rich in Christ. This is the type of right thinking that leads to a godly attitude in trials, and that's how you endure. That's the only way you're going to be able to endure your trials. And really, endurance, that's what, that's what this is all about. If I can just one more time tie the threads together and, and give you the bigger picture of James 1 again. Remember, he's writing his audience. They were suffering various trials, including poverty, kind of like us today. And you know what they needed to do in response to their trials? In the end, they, they just needed to endure. That's it. To persevere in the faith. Not fall away, just cling to Christ. That's what they needed to do. Kind of like us today. But that can be extremely hard. Especially when you're living under this long-standing, crushing poverty. It doesn't let up. You don't have anything. It wears you down. The only way you will be able to endure such a trial is if you can come to consider it all joy. Consider even that trial joy. That's what you must do. But that's crazy talk. That's, how can you do that? Well, again, only by divine wisdom. Remember verses 5 through 8? You, you need wisdom to see things, to see life, to see your trials from God's perspective, to see what he's doing in them. He's not so concerned about this life. He's trying to prepare you for the next. And that involves testing, refining, proving, and strengthening your faith. These are good purposes. God has good and eternal purposes, even in our trials. And you have to get on board with God's perfect will. That's hard, but look, pray. Pray for wisdom. And he promises to give you the understanding to transform your trials that you might endure. And all that applies to poverty. It's all the same thing. This is how, this is the only way how the the brother or sister of humble circumstances will be able to count that trial joy and even boast in their high position. And that is the only way they'll be able to endure. In God's eyes, this is how the poor become rich. It's a paradox that leads to joy and endurance for those who are low in the world. When the, when the poor become rich. There's a second paradox here. That's really equal and opposite, worth giving our attention. So number two, when the rich become poor. When the rich become poor. For here, James addresses not just those struggling in poverty. He also addresses those who have it all who have no care or concern of material things. He's going to talk now to the rich and has a lot more to say to the rich. And so let's look now how the the rich become poor. Verse 10, he says next, And the rich man is to glory in his 
humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. We'll stop there for now. James now directs an admonition to the rich. First off, though, right off the bat, we have to address a question here. Is this rich man a Christian? Does James think of the rich man here as a believer or as a non-believer? You find many commentators believe that James thinks the rich man is not a Christian. That's a non-Christian. He's not called a brother. He's called the rich man. Also, James says this man is passing away, which is taken to refer to judgment. And later we'll find in chapter 2 and chapter 5, James has some very harsh words for those who are rich, those who are wicked oppressors. That being said, though, I actually think it's pretty clear that James thinks of this rich man in verse 10 as a fellow brother, as a believer. James does not believe in salvation by poverty, nor does he believe that, that wealth and following Christ are mutually exclusive. They're not. In chapter 2, he will address some wealthy members of the congregation, and there are examples of wealthy believers in the early church. But more importantly, the, the syntax of verse 10 in the Greek makes clear that really verse 10 is completely parallel to verse 9. And so the verb boast, that carries from verse 9 into verse 10. And also the term brother, I believe, carries into verse 10 as well. And so James, in effect, is saying the low brother is to boast in his high position and the rich brother is to boast in his low position. Equal and opposite, these are both Christian brothers. I might add, by the way, that the term for pass away later on is never used of judgment in the New Testament. Anyway, it's important to establish because how you answer that question will directly affect how you interpret the rest of verse 10. If James thinks of this rich man as not a Christian, then he is being super sarcastic when he says the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. He doesn't really mean that. But if he's thinking of the rich man as a genuine believer, then he's actually being quite serious. He means this when he says the rich man is to really glory in his humiliation. And I believe this is the right way to go. It gives us a second paradox that is perfectly parallel to verse 9. The poor are to boast in their height and the rich are to boast in their lowness. Two equal and opposite statements about the nature of true riches. And so with this being the case, now we have to ask of the rich, what is this humiliation he speaks of that they are to boast in? Well, the word for humiliation, it's almost the same word that he used in verse 9 of humble circumstances. Remember lowness is talking about lowliness, having a low estate. Again, this sounds strange because just as the poor have no reason to think of themselves as high in society, the rich have no reason to think of themselves as low in society. The rich have a high estate, not a low estate. That's the whole point. They're rich. And they boast in their riches all the time. So what is this humiliation? Well, once again, James is still speaking spiritually. And here's where the second paradox comes in, where the rich become poor, poor in spirit, that is. 
It's talking about poverty in spirit. This humiliation speaks of the lowness with which all Christians must come to before the Lord. When you come to Christ and salvation, a great deal of humiliation is required. Meaning humility, brokenness, an end of self-reliance. Dying to self is required to truly trust and cling to Christ. Therefore, for any person, saving faith always begins with the same confession that, that you are lost and guilty and condemned and you deserve God's righteous judgment. You also, you you have nothing to bring. You have nothing to merit his favor. You have no righteousness of your own. But you you simply fling yourself on Christ and you beg for mercy. That's how saving faith begins for anyone who's truly saved. Such a humble plea, though, the Lord promises he will never turn that person away. Makes me think of the third verse of the hymn, Rock of Ages. Where it says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That has to be the cry of every sinner in coming to Christ, to be truly saved. And the point here is the rich are no exception. They don't get a ticket out of that. They don't get an escape clause because they're rich. The same humiliation is required for the rich to be saved. The same casting down of all the things they used to trust in. And this includes their riches. They used to boast in their highest state, in in their wealth. But now they must regard that as nothing and trust in Christ alone. It's like Paul in Philippians 3. He recalls how he used to boast in all these badges of honor, all of his accomplishments in life, his, his merit. But when he came to Christ, he realized all that before the Lord counts for nothing. It means nothing. No matter how good you thought you were, it counts for nothing. And so Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, But whatever things were gain to me, those things I have counted as loss, For the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And James is calling the rich to be like this, to make their boast, their humiliation in Christ. They must not boast in riches, but simply that they are lowly slaves of Christ. That's it. That's their boast. I am but a slave of Christ. Like Paul said, like James said. All right, so that's what this means. The rich man is to boast, to glory in his humiliation. Now let's ask, why is James saying this? Why is this so important for the rich to do, to boast in their humiliation? Well, this goes back to that notion of being double-minded. It's not inherently wrong to be wealthy, but the rich are greatly tempted to be double-minded, to serve 
two masters. It's very easy for the rich to view themselves not through the lens of Christ as humble servants, but through the lens of their own wealth as you know, pretty important people. They start to believe that they're more important. And this fuels one of the greatest sins in Scripture, which is pride. Their, their ego swells, their head swells up, their head gets so big they can't fit through the narrow gate anymore. That's the problem. It's just too easy for the rich to bow down to the interests of their investments as opposed to the interests of Christ. But like Jesus said, again, you can't serve two masters. The Christian who serves wealth, who lives for wealth, who treasures wealth, is not a true disciple. So this is why James warns the rich. He tells them to find their identity in Christ, to boast not in their riches, but to boast in their position in Christ, which is a glorious humiliation. This call for the rich is basically to not be like Nebuchadnezzar. Remember him, Daniel, in the book of Daniel, this great king of Babylon, and one day he went out, he looked at his kingdom, and he said, look at this glorious kingdom, which I have built by my power and my might, really all to his glory. That's a dangerous boast because God just might forcibly humble you like he did to Nebuchadnezzar. God made the king low so that later he would realize, you know that the kingdom you have and all the riches? Yeah, you do have it, but God gave it to you. Everything you have, every breath you have is from God. There's no boasting in self. You just boast in the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar later came to realize that this was true. And he did boast in the Lord at the end. He gave God all the glory and all the honor. And you should do the same, rich and poor. But rich especially must learn to account themselves and their riches as nothing. All they have, they have more. But they just have more to remember is not theirs. Again, they came naked. You're going to die naked. You, You take nothing with you. It's simply God's gracious provision for you and his will and plan. You need to give him the glory. James isn't quite done here. He's got more to say to the rich because they just, they have more, which means they face more temptation, a greater danger than the poor. Believe it or not, the deceitfulness of riches is a powerful force. So he's going to keep going really quick here to to further remind them of the fleeting nature of their riches. He drills home the point that if you make wealth your hope and your master, it's going to fail you. So let's finish up and look at verse 11 briefly here. And again, verse 10, he says, The rich man is the glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. You know, regarding that, actually, it's a common image in the Psalms of the flower of the field coming and then going, just passing away. Again, that word pass away does not speak of judgment. It refers to just the fleeting nature of life, to the brevity of life. All things fade. Nothing gold lasts. The rich are often fooled into thinking that their riches will last forever. Like an eternal security blanket. It'll always be there for all their needs. But that is not so. And it's better you learn that lesson now. 
It's better that you're not like the pharaohs who, who buried themselves with all their gold and treasure, thinking they would take it with them across the river Styx. It's not how it works. You take nothing with you. And most often, riches will fail you in this life too. Before you even get to the grave, your riches will likely fail you. Now look at verse 11. He continues and he says, For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. And so too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. James speaks of a scorching wind here, and in the ancient Near East, this was called a Sirocco wind. I think that's how you pronounce it. But it was a hot wind. It originated from the Sahara Desert. It came north. It could reach hurricane speeds and just laid waste to any unwatered foliage. The flowers of the field didn't stand a chance. And I think we, we kind of get that image. We're here in April. We see all the yellow mustard plants everywhere. It's, it's pretty stunning to see a hillside just covered in yellow with all these flowers in bloom. But you know what? Just wait until June. They'll all be gone. The brown hills will return. We'll see them for another year, you know. Flowers don't last. Literally, verse 7 says of the flower, the beauty of the face is destroyed. Wealth will fade and, and fail. You might be in seven years of plenty right now, but how do you know seven years of famine aren't just around the corner? The rich, they're like flowers. They think high of themselves, like, look at me. They're in the bloom of life. And they tend to think it's going to stay that way forever, that this bloom will just last forever. But it, it won't. And the lesson here, hopefully you learn the easy way. Just listen to James. Don't trust in your riches. Don't boast in your riches. And don't hope in your riches. They can't save you. And it was reported that 11 millionaires perished on the Titanic. One survived. He, re- he later told how he had 300,000 in his room safe. Back then, that's way more, of course. But as the ship was sinking, he looked at the money and he said it was just mocking him. And he took three oranges instead. Made the right choice. But eternally... When your life is demanded of you, when your soul is demanded of you, your, your money means nothing, carries no value, just paper, and it too will burn. In fact, for most people, their wealth is a great hindrance. It distracts from the true meaning of life. The rich are deceived into thinking that living the high life is the meaning of life. Yeah, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? It's a 21st century way of putting it. But James says, even in the midst of his pursuits, he will pass away. He's busy doing business, living it up. And one day, he's going to just pass away. Then what? He will be unprepared, having been so preoccupied living for his riches. His soul will be unprepared, not having Christ to clothe him. And he too will burn away. Those who forsake Christ, the pearl of great price, for fool's gold, will have a rude awakening on the day of the Lord. And so this is where the paradox, the second paradox, comes to a head. Because in God's economy, spiritually speaking, most times riches are a disadvantage. 
In the world, we think of wealth as the greatest advantage. But before God, it's, it's actually a handicap. Again, think of, think of a poor man. He has no house, no car, no money, no nice clothes, certainly no status in the world. He's at the bottom. And now think of a rich man. He's a billionaire CEO. He's got mansions, a fleet of cars, private jets, designer clothes. And in the world, he's a big deal. People think he's, he's important. Now, both of these men face the same requirement for salvation. Same thing. They, bo- mo- they mo- must both come to the end of themselves. They must die to self. And they have to cast down all of their personal accomplishments because before the Lord, they're rubbish. They, they count for nothing. Only Christ's riches can save you. And so they must both come before the Lord, just poor and naked, having nothing to bring, but just begging for his mercy that he would save them. That's what they must do. You understand that? That's what's required in saving faith. And the good news is Christ will always answer that request. But you get, that's what they must both do. But I understand that for the rich man, humanly speaking, that's harder to do. Because he has to come down from a much greater height to bow down at the feet of Jesus. A greater humbling is required for the rich. And the danger is that most people, when they get up there in the ivory tower, they don't want to come down. It's pretty nice up there. They don't want to humble themselves before the Lord. Like we read this morning, the classic example of this is the rich young ruler. He came to life. He wanted, or rather he came to Christ and he wanted eternal life. He thought he kept the law and he served God, but in reality, his master was wealth. And so when Jesus challenged the idol of his heart by telling him to sell everything and follow him for eternal life, He walked away. It says because he was one who owned many possessions, or in reality, his possessions owned him, and he chose his master. You have to do the same thing. You must choose your master. This doesn't mean you have to literally sell everything to follow Jesus, but if Christ is your master, it does mean you place everything into his hands, your very life, including your riches. Your life is now at his disposal. And you know what that might mean? Giving a lot away to serve others, to care for others. It certainly means living and giving to meet the needs of others as God calls the wealthy. But this is a hard pill for the rich to swallow. They don't serve others. Others serve them. And this is why thereafter Jesus said, it is very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. The poor will inherit the kingdom. The rich, it's going to be pretty hard. Not many rich people are willing to boast in the humiliation of Christ. But I hope you learn this lesson from James this morning. There's no hope in riches. Your only hope is in Christ. Turn to him. Hope in him. And then understand that at the foot of the cross, there's only level ground. Everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. 
All who follow Jesus are equal before him, equally lost, equally dead, equally naked, equally in need, equally saved. The gospel has a leveling effect. That's a good thing. It's what the church is supposed to be. At the cross, the poor forget their poverty, the rich forget their riches, and they both find the same identity in Christ. They are merely his servants, all to his greater glory. So wherever you're at in this life, learn this lesson. Hope only in Christ. Like 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You must make Christ your only hope. And when you do, he will give you a deep satisfaction in life that money can't buy. You will find what it means to truly be rich. The poor in spirit are rich. And then make Christ your only boast. Rich or poor, it doesn't matter in this life. In the end, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't define you. That's not who you are. You are a Christian. You're a follower of Christ. And so boast in your master where you will follow him even in trials. You will endure. I'll leave you with Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we aim to make you our heart's only boast this morning. Recognizing, confessing, knowing you, who you are, what you have done. You're our great God, the, the most high, the great I am, as we sang this morning. And so we praise you, Lord. We, we recognize what you have done for us in Christ, that we were spiritually poor, lost, dead, sinners, deserving of judgment because of our debt of sin. Yet you sent your son Christ to, to come to earth and, and poverty in more ways than one, and to die on the cross, to make us rich, to give us new life, and to give us hope, something we can truly boast in, Lord. In the end, we, we have nothing that we didn't receive in this life or the next, and that there's going to be no real boasting in self. Humble us this morning, Lord, like Nebuchadnezzar. Bring us to our knees, if, if need be, through trials. That is one of your purposes in trials, to show us we are nothing. We have nothing. You are all things in us. But as we are humbled, Lord, and we boast in him, in Christ alone, then fill us with deep joy and satisfaction and purpose that we could even consider our trials joy, that we could endure. This is, this is your plan for us. This is your will. Your ways are greater. Show us these things, that we would live a transformed life where we understand how the, the poor become rich, the rich become poor, but we're all level before you at the cross. It's to your glory we understand these things. We aim to apply them to our life. And we pray now in in Christ's name. Amen.